two readings this morning. The first is from Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. The Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The next reading is from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. A living sacrifice. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Good morning. Very nice to see you. Welcome. Uh, my name is Rupert. I'm the vicar here. And as I welcome you, I welcome anyone who's watching online too. Would you like just to pray with me for a moment? Father God, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you might open our hearts to you afresh. That you'd help us to be teachable and pay attention to what you're saying. Come and help me as I speak to lift you up, Lord Jesus. We pray together in your name. Amen. This morning I want to talk about the master's master plan. The master's master plan. And as I kick off this talk, I want to tell you about three events that happened during the last week. And they involve an email, a brush with artificial intelligence, and a car. Well, actually, the email was from Google telling me that my wait for a turn on Google Bard was now complete and I could have a go. Now, you may not know, but Google Bard is this experiment that Google have set up to try and introduce the world to artificial intelligence. And when your time turn comes, it's replete with warnings that Google is not personally responsible for the answers you're about to get. Any damage done is entirely due to this experiment, so let it be on your head. Well, exactly, that's fine. The car that I want to tell you about, actually, I learned from my wife, Liz, who returned from walking the dog in Chester Square to say that she'd encountered a seriously large, imposing and impressive Rolls-Royce, which had a gold flying lady at the front. And standing next to the car was a not quite so large, but somewhat imposing and very impressive chauffeur. And they got to chatting. And the chauffeur told Liz, yes, this car was worth a small fortune. So out of inquisitiveness, I just Googled, how much does a Rolls-Royce cost? And if you want to start at the top end, it could cost you a billion pounds, which is not bad. 
Uh, it wasn't that model that was resting in Chester Square, but there we are. And the chauffeur explained to Liz it was extremely comfortable to be in this Rolls-Royce. She could, in fact, sit in and give it a go if she wanted. Well, she didn't want, but there we are. And putting these two things together, uh, I actually asked Google Bard, what is the point of a Rolls-Royce car? And, and here is what artificial intelligence tells you is the answer. The purpose of a Rolls-Royce car is to provide a luxurious and comfortable driving experience for its passengers. The cars are known for their high quality construction, powerful engines, and advanced technology. They are also known for their high price tags. Well, there we are. I don't think actually that that pushed Google Bard to the limits, do you? Uh, I, I think that we probably knew that is what a Rolls Royce is for. So, a Rolls Royce that just spent its time sitting next to the curb in Chester Square and going nowhere, I would suggest it's not particularly put to its best use. It may be comfortable to sit in during a rain. It may attract admiration from onlookers as they walk past. But anyone who had a hand in building that Rolls Royce would tell you it's forgotten and has become disconnected from its primary use, from what it was created for. And if it goes in for its MOT next year and the garage discovers it's only done 10 miles, I, I think you know, they'll say, well, they'll be thinking, that's not what this car is really meant for. Now, why do I start a talk like that? Because it's quite possible if we don't watch out that as a church, we too get disconnected from what we were primarily created for. We too cost a lot of money. <laughs> or we certainly cost a lot. It cost God his life. He laid down his life for his people, the church. That's what a church is. We are his people. And my job as a pastor, as a vicar of St. Michael's is to make sure that we don't become disconnected with our primary purpose. God has a purpose for us, individually and together. And I hope you know that. Until we connect with God's purpose for us, individually and collectively, we're going nowhere. We're just spectators. Coming to Christ connects us with new purpose. Have you noticed that? Did someone tell you that at the beginning? You know, Jesus said to the disciples, come follow me, didn't he? And he said something would happen. He said, and I'll make you fishers of men. In John's gospel, he says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Why? I appointed you to go and bear fruit that will last. Or in the Great Commission that was read to us at the end of Matthew's Gospel, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. I've got a purpose for you. I was sitting in the congregation of this church about 40 years ago, and I heard someone give a talk, and they summed up the purpose that Jesus has for his followers so clearly. And like, like many a wonderful master plan, the master's master plan is very simple. His master plan was to make disciples who would make disciples who would make disciples. And that's what Jesus' followers have been doing ever since. So when you come to Christ, yes, it's true. Something new happens. You connect with God in a new way. 
we often talk about, or sometimes talk about, being saved, and that's true. But there's another dimension to it. You're recommissioned as well, aren't you? You stand up now, you enlist to a person, and you live for his cause. Imagine for a moment that you have signed up for the army. You've enlisted and you've been accepted. So you, you start your career in the army. And I'm using my imagination here. And if you've been in the forces, uh, you can come and correct me later on. But certain things happen at once. Uh, you're given an army haircut. You swap your civilian clothes for a uniform. No doubt, quite early on, you get involved in a certain amount of drill and square bashing, and you get to live in the barracks. So let's suppose that in your first week, you think to yourself, ah, oh, this is a bit tough. I think I'll sleep in. Well, you won't have a long career in the army if, if that's what you think you're going to do day after day. But that's not likely to happen in your first week. Why not? Well, because... In your first week, you're surrounded by lots of other people, and they too have been commissioned, and you're all in the same boat. And you knew anyway that when you signed up, these things were required of you. So it's most unlikely that given one week, you're going to uh, not turn up on parade. You knew the army would make demands on you. You knew that you'd have to surrender certain freedoms. And frankly, getting out of bed early is the least of them, and getting your hair cut is the least of them. In time, the army would tell you where to live, uh, how to dress, and sometimes put you in harm's way. Well, let's jump forward a few years now, and you're still in the army, but now you're qualified and you're actually out there doing the business that the army people do. And you've been assigned the task that you have to watch over a farmhouse in which it's thought that terrorists might be either uh, meeting together or storing explosives, that kind of thing. And your job is to watch it night after night after night after night for as long as it takes. When no one else is keeping an eye on you, will you do it? Will you keep it up? Well, you can. Why can you do that? Because you're in training, because you receive encouragement from other people, because you have all the equipment you need, and some of it's quite complex, satellite imagery and infrared stuff and all that kind of stuff. And you can because it's a worthwhile task and you know that you might be saving lives. And temptation will come to you to sleep, but you won't let that happen. Now we'll go forward another 10 years or so. And it's beginning to gnaw at you. Why can't I get a comfortable life like everyone else? I could be at home with the family. Do I want to be globetrotting around the world doing this kind of thing? I'm really not sure I do. So you retire. Now, the Christian life is quite like that up to a point. But the point where it's not like that is you never retire. We're always in the service of God. But we can keep it up because God has given us everything we need, all the provisions that we need, all the help that we need, all the company that we need. But one thing is going to be necessary from the start. Commitment. Commitment. You can't just drift into this way of life. It takes our wholehearted commitment to live out this kind of life. Now that is why, in a fortnight's time, we at St. Michael's are going to have and celebrate what we call Commitment Sunday. And in the next few days, you'll, if you regularly worship at St. Michael's, you will get 
some kind of communication from me, it might be an email, it might be a letter, explaining what Commitment Sunday is. But I want us to know it's a deliberate act that we do every year to recommit ourselves to Jesus Christ. And the reason we do this, I have to do it and you have to do it and anyone else that follows Christ is unless we're careful, we just drift. And the reason we drift is because to follow Christ always is going in a minority direction. Jesus actually said to his followers, he, he never hid this. He said, if, if you follow me, you're choosing to go down a very narrow path. And there are very few people on that road that leads to eternal life. Whereas he says there's a broad path and many, many, many people on that one and it's going in the wrong direction. So it takes a determination and a commitment to make sure that we're on the right track. And this very first step on Commitment Sunday is something none of us can dodge. Absolutely none of us. In the sense that I can't do it for you. I can't be committed for you and you can't be committed for me. And it doesn't really matter whether you're super senior or the lowest junior. In God's kingdom, we're incredibly equal here. It takes a commitment from your heart and mind to God. And he knows if you've made it or not. And it will make a difference. So the very first point I'm making this morning is the need for commitment to be harnessed to Christ if we're going to live for his purpose. And now I'm going to tell you how. Because Paul writes in the second part of our, our reading from Romans chapter 12, verse 1, which was read to us. He writes these words. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, and I'm going to stop there. Here's how to live a committed life for Christ. Keep God's mercy in view. In view of God's mercy. Before you do anything else, keep God's mercy in view. This week coming is Holy Week. Next Friday, here in this church and around the Christian world, people will be remembering that Jesus loved us so much that he died upon the cross for us. The whole of the first part of the book of Romans is all about what God has done for us. That's why the hinge point is Paul saying, therefore, I urge you, keep God's mercy in view. Never forget. I love a story, and I don't know if it's true or not. I love a story of a, a lady who went to a very famous portrait painter and asked that he should be commissioned to paint her portrait. And when the first sitting happened, there was the artist and there was the lady who was paying for it. And she drew herself up to her, her highest height and she looked down at the portrait painter and said, Sir, I demand that you do me justice. And very quietly he said, Madam, it's not justice but mercy you require. And there's a sense in God's company that will be our story. It's not justice we will demand. It's mercy we'll want to receive. And when you have the love of God, the mercy of God in your sights, that is what motivates you to be committed to him.
Someone once illustrated to me what commitment meant by comparing bacon and eggs. And they said the difference between connection and commitment is that a chicken is connected to the egg, but a pig is committed to the bacon. And though I don't much like the expression, you could say God has skin in the game. God has given his life for us. He's so totally committed to you and me. He could not be more committed. But the checkup I need is to see how committed I am to him today and will be this year. The second thing that Paul says we need to do once you've decided you are committed is to think out. So what's an appropriate response to God's mercy? What is an appropriate response for you and for me? Well, according to Paul, this is it. To offer him everything we have. He says, offer your souls and bodies to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is your true and proper worship. And I say to myself, well, wow, Paul, doesn't that sound a bit extreme? Well, yes, it does. Sounds extraordinarily extreme. But then I next think, but isn't it entirely appropriate as well? Isn't that a proportionate response to God's mercy for us? And there is actually a very valuable secret to be had here. To really enjoy Christian life to the full, you need to follow Christ to the full. It is paradoxical. Full commitment opens the door to fullness of life. Playing at Christianity just occasionally will wreck your pleasure of a world and you won't enjoy the kingdom of God either. Those who are fully committed can talk with experience about abundant life that God gives. Paul does and he knows about it. And he tells us here, he spells it out, that we face a choice. And the choice, he says, is either being shaped into the world's mold, which is conformity, or being transformed. And the word he uses for being transformed is a word that we use when we describe what happens when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. It morphs. It completely changes. And Paul says, what are you going to do? He says, I urge you, don't be conformed but allow the Holy Spirit to renew your mind, to change your thinking. I've got a little illustration here from the works of Tolstoy as he described what happened to him when he decided to follow Christ. Let me read it to you. Five years ago, I adopted the teaching of Christ and my life suddenly changed. I ceased to wish that which I formerly wished and I began to wish for that which I formerly didn't. What formerly appeared good now appeared evil, and what formerly appeared evil now appeared good. With me happened just what happened to a man who went out for some business and on the way decided it was unnecessary, and therefore returned. All that was at his right side then was at his left side, and that which had seemed on the left was then on the right. The desire to be as far as possible from home gave way to the desire to be as near as possible to home. The direction of my life, my desires became different and good and evil changed places. And all this was the result of my understanding the teaching of Christ 
otherwise than before. So there's a decision to be made. Will you put on fluorescence or will you put on camouflage? And what, again, is rather paradoxical is, by and large, it's what you do in secret that will determine how high-vis you are. It's whether you're praying in secret. It's whether you're reading the scriptures every day in secret. It's whether you invite the Holy Spirit to fill your life in secret. It's whether you make it your aim to please him. It's what you're doing with your money and your time. These things lie behind a decision and determine whether you're in camouflage or high-vis. And the third and last thing I want us to consider, and here I'm really applying this to St. Michael's very specifically, on Commitment Sunday, and as we approach it, this particular year, I think it's really timely for us to decide on one more thing. It's how you're going to invest yourself in God's church. Not just your money, but yourself, your time. You know, we often think about Paul, because it's true about him, that as a great theologian, he, he writes a, a high proportion of the New Testament. A high proportion of Romans is all about the deep things of God, the very first half, more than half. But he wasn't a, an ivory tower theorist. He actually was a boots-on-the-ground practitioner. And what he has in his heart and in his head and his writing is, what does it take to build up God's kingdom and to grow the church and to shine for Christ? And the answer is teamwork. If you find time to read the rest of Romans, just from chapter 12 to the end, it's all about teamwork. In the last chapter of the book of Romans, Paul lists 24 names of people and five families who built up God's kingdom. St. Michael's right now needs teamwork. Like so many churches, and it really is like so many churches, COVID has ripped the stuffing out of many churches. Why or how? Because COVID has ripped the serving out of many churches. And the kind of volunteer base that enables things to happen has just vanished. And the thing about God's family and church work is you can't outsource church work. You can't just hire in people who are believers to do the work that God's family is meant to be doing. Jesus had exactly the same problem in his day. He told the disciples that this is what they were to pray. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers. Now, many, many, many years ago, I remember watching an item on the news, and they must have had time to fill in or something, because they showed you pictures of the cornfields in Russia. And there was a huge amount of corn and grain stretching as far as the eye could see. But what the news item was pointing out to us was it was all dying on its stalk because there was no machinery to gather in all that corn. And that is the picture that Jesus really gives of his harvest. He says, God is raising up a big harvest. There's a lot of fruit out there, but what you need to ask God for is workers because otherwise it's going to wither on the vine. It's going to die. 
And it's really good for me to be able to say to you, you know, so many areas of St. Michael's ministry, we've put COVID behind us now, and it's beginning, just beginning to grow and flourish. So the amount of children that go out, for example, during this service, is increased over the last year. I'm really happy about that. I'm sure you are too. Now, what's holding it back? Really, it's a need for more people to see the good things that God is up to and to buy into it and to enable it to happen. Same with, I think, what we do, and I am talking very personally about us as a church, don't often do this, but it's appropriate. When it comes to welcoming people, you know, I'm absolutely certain that if I asked you a question on the way out of church, would you like St. Michael's to be a welcoming church? You're not gonna say no. But to be a welcoming church, I think that means you have to have a meet and greet team. You have to have people who actually look welcoming and they're glad to put themselves out to welcome people at the beginning of a service, at the end of a service. That could happen. But we need to be praying for more people to join the, the welcome teams. And the same with every other ministry, because as God gives us growth, we need more buy-in. Now, there's a difference between encouragement and cajoling. And I'm not here to cajole you. That is not my job. And I know that many are already super committed and giving your time already. And believe me when I say the last thing that I want to happen in your life is a kind of church takeover where you just do nothing but this kind of stuff. But I am sharing our needs as a family and explaining to you the particular emphasis of commitment someday this year. Because if we want to see the ministry of God at St. Michael's go up a level, it's going to need more participation. And it's, it's just not something we can get others to do if we're not willing to do ourselves. You've probably heard me say this before, and you'll probably hear me say this again. But I have noticed now, after over 40 years of leading churches, that it doesn't matter how small your church is, or to a certain extent how large your church is, when people come in and they are fully committed, and they say, I'll serve anywhere, something new and fresh happens. God's kingdom just goes forward in leaps and bounds. And I've watched families do that and individuals do that. And sometimes they've been the busiest people you can ever possibly imagine. So it's not a question of, but they're so busy in their private life, they haven't got time. They make time. We all make time. This is common ground for all of us when it comes to responding. Because in view of God's mercy, this is acceptable worship. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you loved us long before we loved you. So we're not working for your approval. We respond out of your love and because of your approval. And we thank you for those who have made a difference and are making a difference to our lives because they're fully committed to you, because they're unwavering in their service. And Lord, we can only say to you, please lead us by your Holy Spirit because we want to be a productive and faithful people. We want to shine for you. We want to be high visibility, not camouflaged. So please come and make that possible and help us to align our wills and our lives to your hopes for us. In Jesus' name, amen.